Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our show offers a friendly conversation with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by the Learn It family of companies, including Autism Spectrum Therapies, Trellis Services, and Desert Choice Schools, helping all children succeed in school and life. Now, here is your host, Rob Haupt. Hey, everybody. Welcome to All Autism Talk. I'm your host, Rob Haupt. I'm a member of the awesome Autism Spectrum Therapies team, or AST. Uh, I say awesome because I'm recording this in an amazing mood where I'm especially proud of our team. Um, We provide ABA services to individuals with autism and other developmental disabilities all across the country. Um, You know, just having having a great day today. I've gotten to see so many of our great board-certified behavior analysts, so many of our great interventionists, uh, back office people, just just making a huge, huge difference. And uh, it's uh, a Friday while we're recording this, and it's just, it's nice to be reminded um, when you get to see all the different people you work with and, and what a difference um, you're able to make in, in somebody's life. And uh, I definitely feel that way today. So today's show... Um, is one that we actually recorded a couple of days ago and uh, is one that, you know, on the surface may feel a little California-focused because we're going to talk today about the um, the new regulations and changes here in California as it relates to Medi-Cal, you know, our state's Medicaid. Um, but for everyone across the country, I want you to really try and look past the, the cow piece of it all because I think this is a really important podcast for people to just be aware of. Um, when California first started the Medi-Cal process, uh, we were, I believe, the third or the fourth state to put forth regulations that were going to open up the door for behavioral health therapy, or ABA, uh, an example of that, um, to be funded by the state Medicaid program. Now, Autism Speaks recently put forth some stats and a map on their uh, Autism Votes website that showed 16 states will either have Medicaid funding or are working on Medicaid funding in 2016. That is a huge jump from three or four to 16 in about a year. So a lot of the issues we're going to talk about, I think, are ones that are really important to be aware of in each state. Um, Things like that you don't always think about. Things beyond just, is this funded? But like, is there someone to diagnose my child? What kind of diagnosis is needing? How do you qualify? Uh, What do I qualify for? Who out there actually accepts Medicaid? You know, all of these questions are the ones we kind of get to second and third after we hear the great news, Medicaid's now funding this. Um, And they're questions that the better we get at posing them from day one when we're putting this legislation or these regulations in place, the more effective um, this funding can be and the more people who can therefore access these services they'll be. So, you know, keep all these things in mind because, as I said, things we, we talked about, Kristen and I, um, were going to, uh, are, are coming up in other states. I know of multiple states across the country where the same exact issues are facing them as they look at their Medicaid. So, uh 
I'm really excited to join or to be joined today by Kristen Jacobson. Now, Kristen is the founder, the board chair, and the executive director of Autism Deserves Equal Coverage. It's an organization that helps families and providers access health care treatment through private insurance. As part of a more than 20-year career in healthcare marketing and reimbursement, Kristen has advocated for autism-related causes since 2006. She led a multi-year statewide effort to pass autism insurance reform in California and was a principal drafter of SB 946, which was signed into California law by Governor Jerry Brown in 2011. Subsequent to that passage, um, Kristen was appointed to the Department of Managed Health Care's Autism Advisory Task Force to help draft recommendations regarding medically necessary behavioral health treatments. Uh, more recently, Kristen has been uh, very active and, and was very active in the changes um, that we've seen here in California on the Medi-Cal front. So, Kristen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Rob. Great to be back. Uh, I'm really excited to have you here. Uh, I know we've been trying to schedule this for a while, and uh, you know we've we've been talking about Medi-Cal and the changes um, because I think it's it's obviously so important here in California how it's impacting kids with autism. But I I think it's important for all of our listeners to know what's going on here because we've already seen it have a bit of a trickle effect to uh, a number of other states across the country. Um, but we're about a year in, and I was just kind of you know figure start off with kind of a broad question and kind of see what you're thinking and how you're feeling about things. But um, big picture, I mean, from what you're hearing from families, from all the work you're doing, how do you feel this whole process has been working? Well, I think it very much depends on the families that you talk to. Um, there are absolutely a decent number of families who have been able to navigate the system and get access to care. And I think for those families, it's working reasonably well. I think the wait times have been pretty long uh, and the process has been difficult, but there are definitely uh, some families that are getting care. Um, I think if you talk to a whole other group of families that have not been able to get care, they would have a very different opinion on how the implementation is going. I think the effort has been strong. I think there's been a lot of good work put into it, and I think there's been some progress made, but I think there's really a long way to go in terms of actually making access, um, making the treatment really accessible across the board to families who need it and making yes. it accessible in a timely manner. I, I mean, it seems like, you know, from I, I feel like I've I've heard the same thing. Like some families this has worked out really well, but for some families, this is just, it's more confusing than ever. Like they're just, I feel like we get more questions than we've ever kind of gotten before. I'm curious, are there are there specific trends? Are there things you're hearing for the families that are struggling? You know, are, are certain issues coming up consistently for them or is it really just all over the map? I think some of the biggest issues that we're consistently hearing are really long waiting lists and, and mm -hmm. lack of providers. And it's a waiting list for both getting a diagnosis, if you have a child that hasn't been diagnosed with autism, or even if you have a diagnosis, then it's waiting to get through the process of 
finding a provider that has room, that takes Medi-Cal, that has space to start right away. Um, So there's there's a lot of uh, waiting and a lot of difficulty navigating the process. I don't think that there has been sort of successful widespread communication, even to the beneficiaries, that this benefit is available. You know, one of the things I felt like I heard through the stakeholders' meetings um, as well as through a bunch of other people were, you know, theoretically the regional center was still going to provide diagnosis and that there was the, I guess, belief that diagnosis shouldn't be slowed down in any way. There shouldn't be wait lists. There shouldn't be issues because you just go to your local regional center no different than you did before. Um you know, is that just not happening? Are our parents not able to get that? Or is that just kind of a, a misconception or, or misbelief that we were shared earlier on? Well, I think people can still go to their regional center to get diagnosis. I have some questions about whether that is where they should be going. Uh, it feels to me like the yeah. health plans have really advocated the responsibility of doing the diagnosis to the regional center. And it's not clear to me why they are doing it or that they should be doing it. But the other piece is that the regional center timeline for doing an assessment and coming up with an individual program plan is 120 days. The timeline Mm, that the insurance company has to do a a diagnostic assessment, they have 15 days to schedule an appointment. And that's an appointment for the evaluation. It's not an appointment to get on a waiting list for an evaluation. Um, So, the timing is a big problem. There is, in Medi-Cal, there is not the ability to get a diagnosis within the requirements, the time requirements. I think it's very important for beneficiaries to know that when they request an appointment for a diagnostic evaluation because they're concerned, their pediatrician is concerned, the health plan has 15 days to give them an appointment. That's the required waiting period. It's not 120 days, it's not six months, it's not a year. And yet, families don't know that when they're told there's a waiting list that that they should be appealing that. That's not something that you should just accept and say, oh, okay, I guess I can't get evaluated for a year. They have 15 days and they need to find a provider. They, it's not, they're not supposed to be sending you out on a wild goose chase to try to find out who's the provider because families are calling lots of providers who say, I don't take Medi-Cal. The onus right. is supposed to be on Medi-Cal to say, these are the providers that you can go to. When I've the, heard... The second piece of it... Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I even heard, though, you know, I, I was speaking to a friend of mine who is a, a licensed psychologist. He does diagnostics, and he actually uh, is in network with a number of health plans. And, you know, one of the things he was sharing with me is there's a lot of people in his circle... Who is who are confused because they they want to and they're they're thinking about taking Medi-Cal to do a diagnosis, but then they get thrown off by this whole comprehensive evaluation because they can't do all of the different components that theoretically are supposed to go into this eval uh, within the diagnosis. Well, I think that's another big part of the problem is that DHCS has set a criteria for a diagnostic evaluation that doesn't comport with what is necessary for a diagnostic evaluation. It far exceeds what is sort of the standard clinical practice 
for an evaluation. And so they have made it much more onerous because you need a psychology visit where they say you need a psychology visit and a speech visit and an OT visit and an audiology visit. That is an enormous amount. That is excellent. I think everyone is entitled to have a completely comprehensive evaluation, but a completely comprehensive evaluation should not be a prerequisite for treatment, in particular Mm -hmm. when the waiting lists are so long and there's not even centers that are set up to be able to do these evaluations. Um, You know, standard practice, uh, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics, is to begin intensive treatment for a child as soon as the diagnosis of autism is seriously considered and not wait to commence treatment for a definitive diagnosis. So by having kids have to get in line for these long comprehensive diagnoses and at the same time then not access care until that has been completed, it goes against clinical standards, it goes Mm -hmm. against timely access standards, it goes against the whole concept of preventative care under the Medi-Cal Benefit EPSDT, which is early periodic screening, diagnosis, and treatment. And so um, it's a huge process that's being made more complicated and is delaying things unnecessarily. But Mm -hmm. at a a minimum, if you're going to have a long, comprehensive process, then they need to be providing the treatment in the interim. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, it just... It feels like, I, I, and this just may be my fear and nothing else, but I hear these the talk of wait lists, the lack of, of a diagnosis, and all these issues, and it makes me wonder, is early intervention just going to go out the window? Like, is, is it just impossible for a kid to get early intervention now in this system, and are we never going to see a kid before four years old if it takes so long to well, get Well, that would certainly done? be going against, every bit of data because all the clinical data is suggesting that the earlier you can intervene, the exactly. better the outcomes, the higher the chance for a successful intervention. So it's just really sort of antithetical to everything that we know about how to treat autism and what's effective for autism. Um, but I really do worry um, it's it's very concerning. It's very concerning that, you know, a year in, there are 20 counties that are not serving a single child with behavioral health treatment. How really? is that possible? Yes. And as I of, feel as like of we July see data, 30, though. Because uh, I feel like that's different data than we would see at the stakeholders' meetings, where they would say, oh, we're doing all this and we're doing all that. But is it that those kids were maybe in the process of a wait list or something like that versus actually getting? First of all, the data from at the stakeholder meetings is at too high of a level and it's compiled, you know, at a statewide level and so you're not Mm -hmm. able to see any of the sort of nuance of it. Um, Mm -hmm. They have, I'm trying to look for the July 2013 data so at least I can have... um, just a sec. I have June in front of me, but I'd rather have. Do you have? Okay, here. Um, so, as of July, 5,717 kids had called in about accessing behavioral health wow. treatment. So, nearly 6,000. 
that only just over 2,000 children were actually receiving behavioral health treatment. So, you know, and that's at a statewide level. Um, You have nearly a, a eight or 900 kids who've been referred for a comprehensive diagnostic evaluation that haven't gotten one. And you have over a thousand kids that have gotten the diagnostic assessment, but have been referred for a behavioral health treatment assessment and haven't gotten that. So, you know, the net of all those pieces falling out is, you know, just over a third of individuals who've tried to access the care can. And that's at a statewide level. If you break down the 2,145 kids receiving behavioral health treatment, almost 600 of them are in Orange County, and then everybody else has very, very few. So Hmm. Orange County is doing something right. I I haven't looked at the population numbers, but I don't think that they are the largest county. Certainly Los Angeles County would be larger than them, and Los Angeles County only has 257 kids who are receiving behavioral health treatment. Do you think it could have something to do with CalOptima being the only managed care plan in Orange County? You you just have one plan. You're just dealing with one group. It it is kind of like a medium-sized county, you know, a larger medium-sized county, but kind of in the middle in terms of, especially in terms of geography. I, I wonder if that factors in. You know, I really don't know. I, you know, it would be sort of complete speculation because I haven't done yeah. the research into it. One thing that it does kind of remind me of, though, is when the regional, when the Los Angeles Times did the regional center um, county by county comparison. Orange County Regional Center was the one that spent $18,000 per um, regional center client, whereas uh, South Central Los Angeles spent 1800 So yeah. I can only assume that there is more history with behavioral health treatment. There's more history with a regional center that has served its population well and then maybe has done a better job of educating individuals about it, or maybe they're doing a better job of actually um, diagnosing the kids. You know, it, unfortunately, we we have the step level about where kids are only at the state level. And then at the county level, we have how many are actually mm. getting care, but we don't have any information at a county level about what state of the process are they? Where is the holdup? Are they not contacting? You know, are they not asking for it? Do they not know about it? I, I can't tell you. I mean, I, I've talked to a family just last week who wasn't even aware that the benefit had passed or a year in. And it's a family that was active enough to have gotten on a bus a year ago, driven up to Sacramento to, te- you know, to go visit legislators to ask for Medi-Cal benefits, and yet this family didn't know that it actually was a reality and they could get mm-hmm. it. You know, that's very problematic. Um, and then I've talked, you know, so I think a lot of people don't know about it, then they don't know about what their rights are, so when they're told that they're a waiting list. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, the Inland Empire, um, the, the Inland Empire Health Plan has done one of the more comprehensive um, sort of, let's see, they've done, you know, they've actually had a comprehensive project to put together 
a diagnostic center because they yep. actually a number of years ago noticed that they had a, a later diagnosis rate than comparable areas. And they said, what's the problem? We don't have diagnostic capability. So they went out and they developed a diagnostic center. Um, but even then, I don't know that they have the, the, the in their diagnostic center, they don't necessarily have all the pieces that are even required by the GHCS evaluation. And also, they have about a six-month waiting list. Oh, yeah. So it's the but- best-case scenario in terms of a county and a health plan that's actually gone out and tried to build capability for diagnostic evaluation, and they have a six-month waiting list, you know, that, that's, a, that's a pretty disappointing and sad state of affairs that that might be one of your best-case scenarios. Well, I, you know, thinking through, as we were talking about before, you know, the flip side of this could very well be, because because I'm thinking to the calls I get now from some of the regional centers, you know, I'm still getting calls from regional centers in Southern California saying, hey, this kid's going to be on a waiting list for their Medi-Cal plan for six months. We're going to pick up the pieces for six months. Let's get services going. So I'm still getting calls from regional centers referring uh, clients to me um, because the managed care plan isn't necessarily up to speed. So I also wonder, you know, do you, like, how does that factor in? You've got a regional center who maybe is saying, no, we're still going to fund some things. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Does that kind of allow things to just kind of slowly drag on? Does that cover up wait list issues? But is it in fact good because now the kid is getting services and otherwise would be waiting? It's it, it really feels like it's just kind of all over the place. I mean, and, and I don't know that all regional centers are doing it. I mean, oh, they're they, definitely it not. sounds like that regional center is doing what they're supposed to be doing, which is being the provider of last resort. If a family exactly. can access it through Medi-Cal, they are supposed to go there first. If they can't access it through Medi-Cal, then the regional center should be paying. And I think it's a good thing because you don't want to have the regional center. um, I mean, they have ultimate responsibility as well. They can't just not treat the kids. And I think some regional centers are actually doing the opposite. And their people are coming in, they're saying, well, we don't do that anymore. Go to Medi-Cal. And they're not knowing or paying attention or telling the kids and the families to come back if they have problems. And then those kids just aren't getting served. So I think... You know, that's a big problem. I mean, I don't think it should be on the regional centers to be the ones to be responsible for making sure the insurance companies have adequate networks. I think what needs to be happening is that DHCS needs to be taking a much more active role in actually monitoring the networks, really making sure. I mean, they've told us that they can only pursue individual family issues when we bring them family issues and that there's no evidence of systemic waitlist. Well, I'm not sure how they can say there's no evidence of systemic waitlist when, say, the entire Inland Empire Diagnostics Center has a six-month waiting list. And at one of the um, the stakeholder meetings, their medical director testified to that. I think at that point it was four to five months. Whatever yeah. it was or is, it is substantially longer than 15 days. So I'm not sure what it is that DHCS is waiting for to be enforcing building network adequacy. Um, I mean, part of the problem is they haven't yet even, as far as I've been able to tell, published their rates that are useful. They published some, they pulled them back. Mm -hmm. 
what they've published isn't helpful. And so, you know, they're asking providers to sign contracts for here's what I'm going to pay you, but I could change at any point yep. um, what I'm going to pay you. Well, I mean, I don't know who can run a business of I'm going to, you know, sell you a car for $1,000, um, or I guess a car isn't really a good example, but, you know, I'm going to be selling you a product and I'm going to pay you $1,000 a month for it. But I might decide that next month I'm going to start paying you $100 a month and you're still going to be obligated to to provide me the service. I mean, you know, that just that doesn't work. You can't pay employees. You can't have staff. So, you know, a lot of providers I've talked to are still trying to figure out, I want to take Medi-Cal, I want to help these families, but no one can tell me what they're going to pay me. You know, and I I've I personally experienced that, and, and I was going to bring this up. You know, they're all everything's an interim agreement, and you know that that scares me personally. And and you talked about the rates. You know, I think something that's kind of gets lost in this because you know we as providers we, we clearly made the rate issue be a, a significant issue, and, and you know the reasons for that you've described. But I even find that. You know, managed care plan A has one set of rules as to who can supervise and who can't. Managed care plan B has a second set of rules. C maybe has something in the middle, um, but A has different training requirements than B. Or, you know, C has different billing requirements. Like, there, it's really all over the map who lets, who allows what, um, whether it be from qualifications, training, um, some of these groups, I think, have really great intentions about trying to ensure that there's some sort of quality control. But as a provider, it gets so difficult when 10 different groups might have 10 different methods and you have to try and adhere to all of them. Like, that's really hard to manage. That's really hard to adhere to and then maintain actual quality clinical services. And I feel like that's kind of getting lost a little bit in the last couple of months. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of – there's, there's not a transparent process right now for me to be able to understand what are the messages that are getting sent from DHCS to the health plan. But yeah. assuming that the, so many of the health plans are interpreting them differently can only lead to the conclusion that the guidance isn't either isn't clear or is able to be so varied – um, and there, there's so much leeway that it really makes it difficult. I mean, communication has all but stopped from DHCS. They stopped yeah. stakeholder meetings. I'm not sure, you know, there's no, there was no explanation as to why. I think it's a terrible idea. I mean, we're yeah. still seeing things and still having problems. And, you know, the, the fact that you have 20 counties a year in that have still not treated a single person is really problematic, and yet, there's no longer an opportunity for stakeholder input. And, you know, whether or not they're planning on reconvening them at some time in the future, why aren't we having them now? The issues are happening now. Um, yeah. You know, less communication doesn't make sense. Um, there was very limited uh, communication and input in the transition plan, in the um, comprehensive diagnostic discussion, Um they seem to do a lot of meeting by themselves and then telling everybody what they've concluded and then kind of after the fact 
asking for input, mm-hmm. but after they've already communicated it. Um, and, I mean, we've had a really hard time getting data. So the county data that we were able to get, um, the source is the Department of Healthcare Services, but it was re- repeatedly um, refused when it was asked directly of DHCS by stakeholders um, or at these stakeholder meetings. Um, and so, you know, the legislature had to go to it. Another advocate had to go to um, to the legislature and request that the legislature request the county-by-county county information. Um, we were, you know, constantly told we couldn't have it. It would violate confidentiality. You know, all they needed to do was put less than 11, and it doesn't violate confidentiality. But there was no interest in trying to work around that. And even right. when it was clear that the data was available, they wouldn't provide it without us having to go back to the legislature to request it. Um, and we would like all the county data broken down by what part are they in. Yeah. And, frankly, we would like data on how long are things taking because there's a certain amount of time they're supposed to be taking. Mm-hmm. And we all know they're taking longer. They're supposed to be monitoring the network adequacy. So the way to do that is to see if the timely access requirements are being met. If they're not monitoring it, then they're not able to find out whether they're being met. So I'm not sure how they would hope to do their job. And if they are monitoring it, then why aren't they sharing it with us? But the bottom line is we've asked for the information. We've asked for timelines and how long things are taking, and we're not getting it. Um, you know, I had, so I had one plan tell me that they are monitoring it based on how many providers are there. So they're asking – one plan kind of opened up to me a little bit and said that – they were looking to see how many BCBAs are in the network, how many paraprofessionals are in the network, and they were looking at network adequacy from like a headcount point of view, not necessarily from a timely access point of view, which gets kind of tricky because someone like me, I mean, I have lots of staff, and, and you could look at my headcount and say this is great, but they're also being spread across lots of different health plans. They're not dedicated right. to... That one managed right, and they're plan. and they're not necessarily available to see new kids. They may be fully utilized right, right now. Exactly. So they're exactly. not asking about availability. They're not asking about headcount that's available to take kids. Um, and given that the requirements are timely access and how long you have to wait for an appointment, once you have a diagnosis and you've requested treatment. It's 15 days for that. I would call it 10 because it's mm-hmm. mental health treatment, which is a 10-day requirement. They're saying it's a specialty appointment. It's 15 days. Uh, so that seems to be fairly inconsequential given that when people are actually having to wait months, you know, I'll mm-hmm. take 15. You know, I'm not, right, right. I won't quibble over that, but we're not close to that. Um, and so you can't be measuring whether someone has more than a 15-day waiting list by asking them how many BCBAs they have on staff because those are those can be completely unrelated. Well, you can't even really ask about how long is your wait list because it's a wait list is so nuanced of well, what time of day are you looking for services? What city do you live in? Are there factors such as school or uh, you know uh, a daycare or uh, you know, parents' work schedules that need to be considered. Like, it's very, I find that, you know, what, how long is your wait list to be a very complicated question 
based on the nature of this service industry. It's it's never quite that clean because it varies so yep. much. I, I'm I mean, for curious. a diagnostic evaluation, it should it should be more straightforward. Yeah. Um, yes. But but I definitely I can see what you're talking about for a service that's so individualized. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm kind of curious. I know we've been talking a lot about ABA and the behavioral health treatment. Um, you know, the the feeling I'm getting is that the the message, whether that comes from the state, from parents, from from whomever, you know, it, the regional center is kind of playing a back seat. In a, in a way, it's becoming this healthcare world, and it's about you got to go to Medi-Cal for everything. You know, go to Medi-Cal for your ABA. Go to Medi-Cal for your speech. Go to Medi-Cal for your OT. Um, how, I mean, are you hearing from families about how the overall access is? You know, we've talked about the diagnostic eval. You know, that kind of gets the door open. Um, we've talked about the behavioral health treatment. Um, where, are there issues coming up on the other front? I mean, these aren't the only things families are looking for when it comes to uh, to therapies. Yeah, issues are coming up across the board. Um, you know, very frequently you see or talk to families or see posts about trouble getting speech therapy or occupational therapy. And, you know, in those cases, I suppose a headcount of providers is, you know, potentially a valid place to start because they actually have zero providers. They have zero speech therapists in their network. They have zero um, occupational therapists in their network. Um, so it's been, you know, a lot of different counties do it differently and some will illegally send you back to the school district and say you're supposed to get your speech from there or a lot of the counties still have these requirements where did you choose speech sessions a month, which they may be allowed to do for adult care, but they're not allowed to do for anyone under the age of 21. Um, so, um, you know, it's, it's a mandatory benefit, um, if it's medically necessary, under the age of 21. So uh, there are lots of issues across um, all kinds of services. One that that came up and comes up very frequently, um, particularly for individuals who have uh, severe mental health conditions that are comorbid with autism or Mm -hmm. need crisis mental health services or really other intensive mental health services, those are almost um, entirely unavailable for, and particularly for the autism population. There is just a very strange setup within Medi-Cal of how mental health services work. And specialty mental health services that are run by the counties are available for severe mental illness. And there are... um, there are a number of conditions that are listed, and it's most of the severe and moderate mental health conditions in the diagnostic um, manual. However, there is an exclusion for autism, an autistic disorder. Um, And autistic disorder is specifically an excluded diagnosis for specialty mental health. Then you have your mild and your moderate mental health benefit needs, and those are provided by the managed care organization. But then if you have a child with autism who needs severe mental health support and they're not eligible for county mental health because it's an excluded diagnosis and the 
managed care organization doesn't provide it because it's not mild or moderate, a child with autism with severe mental health needs is often left with absolutely nowhere to go get mental health services. And I've had different bodies within the Department of Healthcare Services at very senior levels say specialty mental health is not responsible for that and say that the managed care organization is not responsible for that. Well, that doesn't, who else is responsible for that? Um, particularly if you have a child who's not eligible for the regional center. You know, I had a case this summer like that, and the child had been put in um, to the emergency, you know, taken to the emergency crisis center six or seven times between December and May, discharged every time, never offered any treatment. Um, you know, you're you're too severe, you're not severe enough, we don't have any ability to treat autism. There are no facilities. If you have a comorbid condition, you can theoretically get the depression, say, treated in specialty mental health. But the problem is because of the autism exclusion, no providers who are in specialty mental health know how to treat kids with autism. So you could theoretically go there except that the facilities don't take kids with autism. And there aren't any crisis and residential facilities in the state of California that are licensed for children and adolescents. They're only licensed for adults. So there's just a a hugely broken system on the mental health side. And sort of, you know, to top it all up, this young woman was in a county that was run by a county organized health system and didn't have access to independent medical review or any sort of complaint procedures to the Department of Managed Health Care. There are six counties or five counties that, um, you know, they don't, the only possible appeal is to go to a fair hearing. So while she was in crisis, needed crisis emergency mental health treatment for aggression, self-injury, suicidal thoughts, was had to wait over four or five weeks for a hearing date. I mean, that's useless at that point. I mean, wow. somebody, the family just, I mean, it, it, it was a disaster. And getting help all the way up from many offices in in legislative offices, um, the, the senator of this child was involved. No one could get this girl care. And, you know, that's the... the, the the case is still ongoing, but the health plan never provided one ounce of treatment for this girl. I mean, this this has kind of been my worry. It's I mean, the this crisis world that you're describing is one that that I'm actually familiar with, and it's one that I I spent some time in on the East Coast uh, earlier in my life and in career, and you know, I, I it was never good. It was never, I shouldn't say good, maybe, it just it just never felt quite adequate to me when I was really immersed, immersed in the regional center side. You know, I would have some kids who would get the right treatment when they were in crisis, and then I would have other kids who, you know, they, we would go months and months and months and just have zero options, and, you know, we'd try our best to help the kids out and, and figure out what's the right course of action for these kids, Um and, and this is kind of like I think this issue within this whole medical world really sums up my fears. It's like 
at least in the regional center system, you know, you, you had a care or a service coordinator. There was that care management side of things where you could have a point person who really coordinated all of these different things. Maybe there weren't the right services out there. Maybe there wasn't the right access out there. But I, I found to be a provider to be really helpful to have someone to really coordinate. Um, for the most part, in the insurance world, like we don't have that. You know, if anything, I'm almost looked at um, as the one who has to do all of this. You know, they say, "Oh, you're the ABA provider. This person has autism. Here, you coordinate all the care." Um, and, and there's obviously there's the need to coordinate care, but I don't, I don't know if losing this point person in these cases really is helpful. And and my fear becomes we see more of the cases you're describing, not less as we move into this kind of seg- separated system that it, you know we tend to be under within the healthcare world. Yeah. Um we we really we really need care coordination. The DH uh, the DMHC task force that I served on after mm-hmm. SB nine forty six was put in place for the private insurance I mean, we spent a lot of time talking about care coordination and had some, you know, pretty comprehensive recommendations about what kind of care coordination is needed. And, you know, the health plan medical directors who served on that task force with us, they all agreed about what was needed. Um, mm-hmm. The hard thing is is trying to figure out how to get it in place. I mean, it, that is yeah. supposed to be a role that Medi-Cal plays. And Medi-Cal is actually supposed to be the care coordinator between the school system, between um, really, the the health system. You know, they have a, an affirmative obligation to play that care coordination role. But it sounds like, you know, from your experience and from my experience, it, it's not happening. Um, I mean, you know, for this girl, the health plan completely washed their hands of yeah. anything to do with this girl. And in the end, you know, the school district um, ended up sending her to an out of state placement. Um, where she could be safe. But, you know, they are, the school district is now going back to deal with Medi-Cal and to get Medi-Cal to, um, you know, contribute. But, you know, Medi-Cal is actually supposed to be the one coordinating that care. Uh, you know, within all of this, um, you know, I'm kind of listening to you, and it, and it's, you know, so much of this world is so new to me, and there, there's aspects that I know you, you've gone just been so much more versed in. You've been really more behind the scenes, uh, especially compared to, to most. I mean, is there, I guess, is there an opportunity? I mean, is there still an opportunity and is there more that people can be doing, um, more that providers can be doing to kind of voice their opinions, concerns? Is there more things for parents to be doing? And and what are those things, if if they exist, for us to maybe still try and influence some of these different things that are going on? Um, well, I think that there's, I think we really need to continue to engage, um, well, I guess there's a couple of different things. I mean, I think we really need to work on education and outreach mm-hmm. and, you know, coming up with information that talks about these are the benefits that you ha- are entitled to this is the process for getting it. It needs to be in multiple languages, so it's in the native languages of these families. It needs to 
you know, be able to address the challenges that the families may have by having to have multiple jobs or being, you know, in remote locations or not having transportation. So, I mean, I think there's a lot that can be done both on education and just helping, you know, to reach out to to folks. Um, Then I think it's also really important that we still engage um, the legislature and keep them really involved because DHCS is not, you know, they're not doing the kind of, um, you know, regulatory oversight that I think is needed. And so, therefore, I think we need the legislature to to do that and to play that role, um, which they have been doing, but I think we need them, you know, to play it more. Um, and I think they need to have a hearing uh, on Medi-Cal. Um, we have approached Senator uh, Bell to have a, a hearing and um, as part of the, you know, his mental health uh, select committee. I think that needs to happen. It needs to happen pretty soon. Um, and I also think, like, for the, um, you know, the crisis mental health situation, there's actually a few pieces of legislation that that we need. There, there are three distinct pieces of legislation that this girl would have needed to be able to, to get care. First of all, we need to eliminate the autism exclusion um, in specialty mental health. It completely would violate the, the Perry law to have, you know, one, the only severe mental health condition eliminated. There is literally, it's, uh, it violates EPSDT that there is nowhere somebody with autism can go to get severe mental health um, services. Um, we also need to have the residential and social rehabilitation facilities licensed for children and adolescents, not just adults. Um, that there was a bill on that this year. It didn't make it through. Doss Williams was carrying it, but we need to, you know, keep working on that. And then we also need to have appeal rights and network adequacy oversight by the Department of Managed Healthcare for the county health plans that are at this point not not team licensed. Many counties are, but several counties aren't. And, and the girl I was talking about was in a county that wasn't, so she didn't have mm-hmm. access to any sort of, you know viable regulatory oversight. It's very hard having the payer, DHCS, be the regulator, DHCS. It it makes much more sense to have a regulator separated from the payer um, so that there's not the same kind of conflict of interest. And and Senator Monning had a bill to do that, and, you know, that's still going through. It it became a two-year bill. Um, But, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done um, on the legislative side and and just making sure that the regulatory agencies are doing their regulatory oversight. Um, I think we need more about this in the press. I mean, I, I you know, I, I hope that more and more press will cover it and kind of say, wait a minute, this is supposed to be this great benefit. Um, kids are supposed to get be getting this care. What What's happening? And it's not to say that there hasn't been progress because you know, California, you know, they have actively moved forward. They've submitted a state plan amendment. Um, they did that quickly, and yet at the same it just shows maybe how hard it is because at the same time there there's still a lot of things that that could be done better and and certainly more quickly and and with more 
um, with more regulate uh, with more oversight. One other thing that I'm really excited to share with the listeners is that Autism Deserves Equal Coverage Foundation received a grant from the John and Marsha Goldman Foundation to help families appeal or challenge uh, any issues they come up with in terms of accessing care due to the comprehensive diagnostic evaluation. And that could be that they're having trouble getting scheduled for a comprehensive diagnostic evaluation, that the wait time is more than the 15 days, that they're not being offered treatment in the interim, that a provisional diagnosis is not being accepted, whether the child is below three or over three, um, really any issue with um, the Comprehensive Diagnostic Evaluation. And we have a grant to be able to handle uh, a couple of cases, a few good representative cases on a pro bono basis. So if you think that your um, family might be a good candidate for this or uh, would like to be considered for this grant, um, please contact the email or website that will be given out at the end of the show and just put medical. CDE appeal in the title, and uh, then give us the information, and we will uh, look at it and definitely get back to you. We, we've been chatting away, and you know we're we're, we're coming up to the end of time. Um, I really appreciate you being here. Uh, you do so much different stuff. I, I know you provide so many resources to families. Um, if we have listeners out there who have got questions, seeking advice, uh, how how can they reach you? They can go to our website, uh, which is uh, www.autismcoverage.org. Uh, we have a nonprofit organization, um, and we do uh, we really try to do either free or very very low cost uh, uh, assistance for anybody on medical. That's the, the mission of the nonprofit. Um, and you can also send an email to info at AutismDeservesEqualCoverage.com, um, and that's probably the those are the two best ways to to get in touch with us. Um, either go to the website. There's a contact page. There's also information on the website um, about what the medical benefit is, what your rights are, what your what you can expect, um, sort of a process for how to access the care, and that's in English and Spanish and Chinese. So um, certainly I would encourage uh, individuals and families to go to the website and look at that information. Great. And I know, um, you know, we'd love to have you back. I know there's there's tons of other issues. I know licensure is something you've been working on, so hopefully we can have you back soon and we can talk a little bit about what's going on on the licensure front because I, I know it ties into everything we talked about today. So Yeah, I would definitely really yeah. like that. It's very important, and it's going to be coming up um, again in the next session. And also we have uh, the SB 946 for private insurance that is mm. uh, going to be expiring and needs to be uh, extended. So those are all important issues. Okay. Well, we're going to have to have you back and talk about these real soon then. Uh, thank you. Good. I really appreciate you coming on. All right. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. Take care. So thanks, everybody, for being here today. Um, as I said at the top of the show, I think this is a really big conversation and, a, and, and one that we need to keep having. Um, 
you know, I read the articles on you know, Autism Votes and, and on the other advocacy sites, and, and I get just as excited as everyone else. You know, I, I talk to a lot of families all across the country, and a lot of you guys email us and talk to us on Facebook. And so we, we're hearing that it's hard to get services. It's hard to get everyone to fund this. It's hard just to have the, the approval from your insurance company. So the more avenues like Medicaid that can fund these services, the more access, the more opportunity there's going to be for our kids. I think the critical thing to always keep in mind is what, what really leads to access and, and have we covered everything? You know, the, the part of the conversation that really jumped out the most to me as, as we were talking with Kristen is, is the diagnosis and, and the long wait list we're seeing here in California. I know there's a lot of other states that have been moving down this same exact pathway of Medicaid funding behavioral health treatment. And the wait lists for diagnoses are even twice as long, a year long. Um, you know, there's lots of, lots of different great facilities, great programs out there in these different states. And they do a great job of providing comprehensive evaluations. There's just not enough of them to meet the need out there. And so this access really becomes quite limited due to these waits. And, and as we were talking about today, time and the wait of a year is just something our kids don't have. You know, the amount of gains we can make between the age of three and four are just exponentially greater than five and six. You know, those two years make a difference. That one year can make a difference. So we really need to stay on top of this. This is something I think we need to really be talking a lot about and really advocating more for or, um, as we pass these laws but um, also after these laws are passed to make sure that these stay at the forefront. So I hope you guys have a great week. Um, I will be gone for a couple. This is my last show before my little girl is born. So I will uh, be taking a break, but you know, based on our conversation with Kristen today, I think we've already got uh, at least one great topic on the licensure front that we can come back with you uh, to talk about. So Everyone have a great one, and I will talk to you next time. Take care. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. For additional information and resources about autism, visit www.learnitsystems.org backslash family. Know an inspiring group or individual we should talk to? We would love to hear more from you at more info at autismtherapies.com. Want to hear more? Listen to previous episodes at www.allautismtalk.com. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time.